Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Either that or or on, on the, like, below five juvenile level. <laughs> That's how that's how I like to it's set like, my standards crazy high. <laughs> Below five it's, juvenile. It's the five J. Oh man. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm yeah? good. Yeah? Yeah. I uh I had so much fun talking about that inject ridiculous film that you guys made me see. You're next on the film board. Your favorite. God, it was just not. <laughs> it has and you know sometimes these things you know when we talk about the film i like them more and this it just got worse mostly because uh n- now it's a it's a uh position of uh uh pride it's not even pride what what's the word i'm looking for uh now i've just i've taken it's a platform stubbornness now, <laughs> well some people say you know diligence and honor <laughs> call me stubborn but now it's mostly because you and steve like it so much it's now your favorite film ever and so now i have to not like it even more <laughs> that's right it zipped right up it's... to the top <laughs> so much better than network yeah that's right that's right i love the part with the arrows through the chairs that was my favorite most realistic part the symbolism i'm telling you that was divisive that was good fun it was. Uh, and so if you haven't listened to that, everybody should go back and listen to the film board's latest film board. Uh, film board number 13 was your next. Mm-hmm. Don't even bother seeing the movie first. You don't need to. <laughs> you totally don't need to. It'll be spoiled enough. You'll get it. I mean, you may not get it, but you'll get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, and let's see if you haven't checked out the new uh, post over on the blog at the next reel.com uh, Mal- <laughs> I can't even say it these made up words I know Malikian brain worms brain worms and other symptoms you've seen a good movie another fantastic post uh, by Sarmento I love the maps in that one those were so those great. charts I've never seen those before but they completely fascinate me I, you know the Lord of the, the, Rings, Lord of the Rings Star Rings, Wars yeah. Jurassic Park, 12 Angry Men, which is just a nice, straight, simple one. <laughs> Primer, <laughs> Memento. You know, it's just, it's really Primer cool. cracks me up. Primer is hysterical, oh. just knots. Uh, yeah. The other one, though, that I really liked is the Memento um, yeah. straight line path, which I thought was uh, really interesting. Totally yeah. changes. I, you know, that's one. It's an example of just how your perspective on a film can change uh, by, by laying it out visually like this. And, it's, well, you, know, and it's, you know, sometimes it gets lost because when you're writing a script, like, or, you know, when I'm writing a narrative, right, any significant piece of, of you know, work, I'm, I, I'm pretty old school and I, I start with the three by five cards and I, I like to move them around on a large surface and that's just kind of how I work. And, and sometimes I feel like when I'm looking at something after the fact, like a finished piece of, of film, a finished, you know, documentary project or whatever it is, uh, it 
it feels somehow like other people next to me who are watching it are missing so much of the story because they're missing what I went through to get there. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Like there's so much, and I think what this these maps do is they let you visualize uh, what the what the the creators went through to get there. To me, the particularly the memento one, just laying out sort of scene by sequence by sequence, I thought was really powerful. What's What's interesting about that one is the DVD. There's like a special edition DVD release, probably I don't know early two thousands. And there was an Easter egg. This was back when Easter eggs were all the rage, the most ridiculous things ever. Um, there was an Easter egg that you could plug in this code and you know whatever it was, and you could actually watch the entire film chronologically. Right. Okay. So I remember that. Yeah. So you'd have the whole thing start with the black and white story, and you would just see this whole phone conversation. That he, that Leonard's having in the hotel room, and that goes all the way up to uh, where it turns to color, and then we watch everything in color all the way up through the moment when the film ends, which is really right where the movie actually begins. And it's it was a really interesting exercise to watch it that way, but it does kind of deflate it a little bit. It takes some of the magic of the. Uh, fascinating way that Christopher Nolan used to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can see Which that I, too. I wasn't really surprised, I guess. It's, you know, I mean, it's it's like, you know, recutting Pulp Fiction into a chronological version and watching it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. part, of, part of the fun of some of these stories and part of the magic of what makes the stories work, I think, is... Is not knowing. Well, and it's the way that they structure it. I think structure is such a huge element to... Mm-hmm the way a story is told. And there's a reason that a story is structured the way it is. Yeah, well, I'm not, like, disagreeing with you. I'm just saying it's kind of fun. <laughs> I I agree. I can tell you're in a hostile mood tonight. <laughs> uh, Let's talk about your next again. <laughs> um, the, uh, so definitely, uh, you know what, people? You should check out thenextreel.com. That's really what this, the whole point of this is. And check out the blog for uh, awesome Steveness. Uh, check out all the shows on the Next Reel and in the Film Board. And uh, any of our extras in the extras menu, you can check the glossary and the lists and our flick chart top 100. And the, the, the legendary now at this point, cost per minute breakdown adjusted for inflation. Uh, <laughs> Is it legendary? Has it reached that status? I'm going to have to change that on the website. It's now going to be the legendary cost per minute breakdown now adjusted by inflation. That's the whole <laughs> menu item. Wow, that's you're awesome. Need a, you're, and you're just going to need a bigger screen. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> Our menus are the biggest. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and, and of course, the most important page on the website is the Contact Us page. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you should visit that, too. If you want to check out how all the different ways you can find us, and you subscribe to the show on iTunes, you could jump over to Facebook. Uh, you know, you should do all those things. And you can really write us. You could just write us. There's a form right there. You could write us. A missive. So you should do that, too. Let's talk about trailers. A pensive missive. I want to go first on the trailers. You go first. I'm excited to hear your take on your trailer. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you why. And this this is a little bit of a... Okay. My trailer is uh, Jim 
Mickles, Mickles. I've never seen anything else that Jim uh, Mickley Mickle has done, uh, but he has directed and co-written We Are What We Are, a 2013 drama horror thriller uh, that is coming out at some point soon. Now, why is this film even remotely important to me? It is a drama horror thriller, and I think I'm on the record. I think people know that I'm not generally crazy about these these sorts of films, particularly on the big screen. But this one I am because I have seen the original, which was not long ago. It was 2010. It was a Mexican film. Hmm. And uh, it is... It, I quite enjoyed it. Surprisingly enough, I quite enjoyed it. It's the kind of ho- drama horror thriller that I really like, and I love the way they handled it in this uh, in the Mexican original film. I can't talk about any of it because I'm, you know, I'm eager to spoil. I'm sort of wired to spoil. And so I'm just not <laughs> going to say anything other than go to thenextreel.com and you're looking at the uh, to, at this week's uh, the current episode uh, show and you will see the trailer for We Are What We Are. You should watch it. It looks great. It is a it looks like a um it, it looks taut it looks uh sort of grim it doesn't look uh it, it, it's not a slasher type of a of a vibe to it it has a much more sort of intense kind of grounded vibe uh the way they're they're treating this material it looks very sort of haunting family uh horror and uh, if you know the twist you'll see that it is um you know it 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 looks like they're they're treating it fairly delicately uh, and so I'm excited to see it. My hopes are high. That sh- it's not good, uh, but I'm but I'm very excited to see it. Uh, Is it? And, and I haven't heard any, anybody else in it. Like I I don't know who he, Kelly McGillis. Uh, oh, Kelly McGillis. Check, <laughs> oh yeah. Check that out. I totally know her. <laughs> uh, yeah. Who is well, this ga- Kelly McGillis? Um, uh, well, the dad, the guy who plays the dad is in Boardwalk Empire, which I don't watch, which I, should. I don't, I don't either. I don't either. One of the daughters was in the master. Another daughter was in Martha Marcy, May Marlene, and she's going to be in the Sin City sequel coming out soon. Yeah, See nothing. I got nothing so, for that. So I'm yeah. mostly excited. You know, Amber Childers looks like it was in Gangster Squad too. I totally missed that. And, and my, all, all my children. And good old Michael Parks. Yes, that's true. Too. So I do. It turns out I lied just then. It turns out I actually do know quite a few people. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's it's more of the character actors, yeah. and so that's why I think yeah. it does, they don't stand out quite as much in this. Yeah, and so, actually, but, to your point, Michael Parks actually is looks he looks great. Yeah, uh, in this film, yeah. like the medical examiner kind of a character. So I'm I uh, I'm very excited about this. I mean, you've seen the trailer, doesn't it look uh, look interesting to you? It looks great. It looks really uh, creepy. It looks uh, like it's got. A, a nice pacing going on through it. I mean, something with the trailer just it it feels like very kind of this psychological look at this situation rather than over the top horror. You know. Now tell me when you're watching this trailer that you that you weren't really I mean riveted. When I watched the trailer, I wanted to see more of it. Like I found oh, yeah. myself totally into it. Absolutely, yeah. I totally wanted to go find a, a bootleg copy on the internet and watch it right now. But you would never do that because, you know, you, you like film industry people to work. That's feed right. Their families. That's right. Hypocrite. I, Raging I, hypocrite. I really don't do that. <laughs> you. Uh, let's talk. Uh, let's talk about yours. Wait, so I, there is yours? No do, there's no. Do, I have no date. I don't know when it's 2000. It opens select theaters September 27th. I'm looking at the website, which is ParkerFamilyTradition.com. Oh, nerd. <laughs> Parker. What is the what is the 
period that this takes place in. That was my question with your trailer. It uh, it, it looked like uh, hillbilly contemporary. <laughs> yeah, it looks it looks like a period film, but set present day. Yeah. There's something interesting about the way they shot it, where it looks period, but it's not. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. ParkerFamilyTradition.com. Because and that's the that's the, well, I can't forget it. Yeah. Stop talking. That's okay. Stop that's talking okay. about it because it's got. Go to your trailer, please. Yes. Okay. <laughs> my my trailer this week is uh, it just came out this week. It's the uh, the new uh, Matthew McConaughey diet film, Dallas Buyers <laughs> Club. <laughs> this is this is uh, his version of The Machinist, where he decided to lose a ridiculous amount of weight in order for, to portray this role of Texas electrician Ron Woodruff. Uh, the rodeo guy um, from the 80s. And he's this guy who ends up finding out he is HIV positive in the mid 80s. And uh, he basically has to try finding a way to survive. You know, this is the early days of AIDS and his doctor doesn't give him much of a length of time to, to live. And so he ends up going down to Mexico, crossing the border to buy the drugs that he needs down there. And in the process, he realizes that there's this whole business opportunity of this. This is, and this is based on a true story. There's yeah. this whole business opportunity of supplying this drug that a lot of people need, and bringing it up into the states. And the only reason that they they don't have in the states is because it's not FDA approved. So, so he basically starts this whole this whole you know place to buy these drugs that uh, that help people who have uh, have AIDS and help them. Uh, you know, feel better and, and uh, survive their disease a little longer. So very interesting looking trailer. I was really surprised by McConaughey in it. I think that something about him and, the, you know, it's, it's almost like since Lincoln Lawyer yeah. moving forward, he's been doing nothing but very wise choices. And I really enjoy watching him on screen right now. I, I don't think you can talk about this film without mentioning Jared Leto. Well, and that's the other thing I was going to say is I didn't even recognize that Jared Leto was in this trailer. Normally, I can pinpoint anyone in a trailer. I'm really spot on at picking people out. I didn't even recognize him until his name popped up, and it really floored me. It surprised me. He is a transvestite that uh, kind of partners with McConaughey's character uh, as they start bringing these drugs into the country. And I was completely surprised by him in this performance. I think it's, I think it's a, a marvel. I'm really excited to see what he brings to the role. Who's, uh, who's going to win an Oscar for this? <laughs> well, it is coming out award season. It, it opens November 1st. Yeah, so that's... they're definitely going to be pushing award nominations for, I'm sure, those two. Those two, certainly. Yeah. Uh, who else? Uh, Jennifer Garner is in it. Jennifer, and, uh, um, yep. Steve Zahn Steve is in Zahn, it. Right. Dennis O'Hara is his doctor. Griffin Dunn is in it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a good cast. I, I'm quite looking forward to this one. I, you know, I think it looks great. And, you know, I, I, it's sort of the, um, if you really want to like Breaking Bad, uh, but you don't like the fact that it's meth, you should see this movie. <laughs> right. Because this is a good this drug. This is a to help good people. drug movie. Yeah. But, so. <laughs> there you go. That's a way to sell it. Yeah. It's oh, like man. Breaking Bad with, you know, good drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Uh, awesome. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. All right. Let's. Uh, so we. I think we're finished with old business. New trailers. Let's, I think so. Let's talk about this film. We are continuing our series. We're right in the middle of our series. 
the drama of the Brothers Cohen. And tonight we are looking at Barton Fink. For the first time in the history of the Cannes Film Festival, one film has swept all the major awards. Barton Fink. Mr. Fink. Excuse me? Howdy, neighbor. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing for the pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time, then. Is that him? Is that Bob Fink? Say whatever the hell you want. The writer is king here at Capitol Pictures. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? Is that more than one thing? Okay. This is a tricky film to figure out how to market. I don't I don't envy anyone trying to cut a trailer together for this film. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't know what you're selling. It's it's such a strange movie. Now, as we listen to that trailer, like the my my first thought is god, I can't wait to see The Great Gatsby. Like it looks like an energetic period film about Hollywood and you know why to do die and it looks like a very exciting film. It's not that film. It really isn't. It really isn't. But at least they sell the the Cannes Film Festival sweep of the three awards in the trailer, which right. really surprised me. I'm like, was that a big thing back in the uh, <laughs> back in the '90s? That you know, wow, wow. It, like, did it, the average American go, "Oh, look at that"? Oh, honey, look. Oh, Cannes. It won the Palm d'Or at Cannes. It's Let's go. <laughs> totally Cannes. <laughs> Uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I, you know, I think there's a, I, I, I think they were obviously quite obviously challenged with this, with marketing this film. And, um, you know, I, I wonder if, I wonder if the Coens had a problem with that, <laughs> you know, it's, it seems like this was a, a movie out of, uh, that came out of a different place than, than a lot of their other films. And, and uh, at least in terms of the creation of it, uh, and I, you know, there's this there's, there's this fantastic quote from from the brothers who, you know, talk about just the the way their films come together, and and that some movies, some of their films, uh, you know, come together. They're very they're they're quite a struggle. Like Miller's Crossing was a, was a struggle to write just because of the complexity built into it. But in this one, the quote is uh, is fantastic. You know, with Barton Fink, we just sort of burped out Barton Fink. <laughs> <laughs> right and that i i think i mean this in a complimentary fashion but that's exactly the feeling i get when watching it yeah <laughs> that, it, that you are watching someone's burp <laughs> this is a creative burp in their otherwise uh, fantastic um or it, now i i say that as if i'm going to come out and say I, I suddenly didn't like it and that's absolutely not the case i i quite like barton fink and uh you know it is it, uh, maybe the exception to the angry Pete rule of popcorn movies, uh, I do I do uh, quite enjoy this film and uh, and I I like what they did. I particularly like uh, John Turturro's performance and and uh, John Goodman's performances in these films. Uh, but m- much of the film, the reason I like the film so much is that um, it, it's a film that exists on so many symbolic um, uh, planes. Yeah. And and many of them don't necessarily intersect. You know, I, I love that you can look at this film from so many different angles and 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 get 
a, a lot out of that vision. So, but I'm curious what you what you thought. Now, this was one that you had said uh, you didn't like as much, and and uh, on reviewing it, did you get anything more out of it? Yeah, you know this. I <laughs> this is a film that I watched. I got to the end. I'm like, I don't know if I really know what this movie is about. <laughs> it's such a strange movie. Uh, but here's the thing: is there's so much interesting uh, stuff going on all through the film that I still liked it. And and my my memory of it was I didn't like it very much. I came out of it liking it and enjoying it. And I think I would happily go back and watch it again and revel in the strange mysteries of it. It's like going back and watching you know, a David Lynch movie like Mulholland Drive or something. There's just like, what, what is, what is all this weird symbolism here? I wrote, I wrote a list out of just crazy symbols and things that we don't have to talk about, but I think that there's just so many things that you could say about all of these things. Let me just, let me just read through my list. I I want to see if your list looks like my list. Shoes. (laughs) Heads. Sounds. Mosquitoes, wallpaper, ear pus, <laughs> <laughs> crashing waves, weight descending, the common man, December 7th, 1941, hell, Nazis, Germans, Italians, and the Holocaust, <laughs> muses and women, fire and water, Sweat and heat, wrestling, reality versus the mental state, i.e., life of the body versus life of the mind, the box, sex and violence, the number six, and pelican dives. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, did you say heaven and hell? Uh, well, I said I said hell. Okay. I did say hell. I didn't. I didn't say heaven. Okay. Uh, I didn't and, see much of heaven. <laughs> well, and there's this there's this sense of honesty versus ethics, and I, that for me is just a connection that I I made uh, based on our conversation last week uh, over um, Miller's Crossing. Uh, you said uh, sex. I would say sexuality uh, in particular. Sex. He's a man. We wrestled. <laughs> which actually is something else is homosexuality, right. which is something interesting between these last two films. Yes. Okay. Uh, so there was that. Uh, let's see. Uh, you talked about you talked about religion, right? Did you talk about specifically religion and the and you know uh, the, I didn't the, the redeemer. Uh, I didn't say that. Okay, well, that's on that's on my list. So we have quite a list. This is going to be about a seven hour show. So. Yes. <laughs> uh, I I uh how how would you uh how would you like to start? Gosh, I you know I don't know. <laughs> that's the I, that, that's the trick about this film. It is at, uh, on the surface, right? It is a film about a, a writer. And and this gets to I think the high level of of uh, the the Cohen gestalt right I, I, typically the the you know we've talked about this before the coen brothers talk about the the sort of every man the common man and that's that's certainly a major theme in this film but the protagonist uh, w- one of the things i love so much about Totoro's uh role as the writer 
as Barton Fink, is that uh, he is portrayed in the beginning as a, uh, you know, not to steal something from Miller's Crossing, but as a made man in the arts, right? He's, yeah. he's on the heels of a fantastic uh, premiere of his, uh, of his great opus. Uh, and uh, as such, he is invited to uh, join the contract staff of writers uh, for, uh, you know, in Hollywood for this uh, film production outfit in a studio in Hollywood. And so what we see in the transformation from, uh, you know, Barton in uh, New York to, to Barton in California is, um, is essentially the, the fall of the fall of man, right? I mean, that's the fall of Barton Fink as he comes to this realization that now he is suddenly in a whole new element and facing a whole new challenge. And that is sort of the way, you know, to me, it feels like we fall into uh, a, a Cohen film, right? It opens with something different, but now he gets to California, he goes into the Hotel Earl, and suddenly he is, uh, he realizes that he is essentially on the streets here uh, yeah. and, and in completely unfamiliar territory. I love the way that the way the film opens that way. And it's funny that, you know, just as an aside, but it's funny that you said he's on the streets here when we never see <laughs> anyone on the streets at all in L.A. It's always, you know, in places except for when they are picnicking at the at Griffith Park. Right. But otherwise, it's always just interiors, interiors and in the most uncomfortable interiors, uh, you know, I for lack of hyperbolic speech here, there's incredibly uncomfortable interiors. It's always hot. It is so hot that, in in fact, the uh, the 1941 wallpaper glue is melting and the and the uh, wallpaper is peeling off the walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it ends up being this just sort of horrific hot uh, place. And and you know the uh, you know the the comparison of the Hotel Earl uh, to hell is not lost uh, certainly not lost on the cohen's who said you know gosh you know, we were on the set of of uh, blood simple i think they said and and uh, you know we're on the set of we're, we're shooting blood simple and we came to this hotel and it was like wow talk about hotel hell mm-hmm. and suddenly they had a set for barton fink yeah uh and um so there we are in, in the hotel what do you think about the hotel the set with with Chet the bellhop, Chet the bellhop. Who, when we first meet him, he rises up out of the floor through a trapdoor, holding a shoe with its sole pointed at us. <laughs> exactly. And what up. does he? The uh, you know we only see him I think one other time. Is that right? right? And that's when he's walking with his cart down the halls, collecting people's souls, souls. essentially shoes. <laughs> right. 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 And so, what do you think of that? Is it too? Is it too on the nose? The the uh, hell uh, references here. No, I don't think so. I mean, yes, it is. It is too on the nose, but not in a way where it because everything else is a little obfuscated as far as what all of these crazy symbols mean and what's really going on here. It's not so on the nose that it turns it into something that's just kind of a trite symbol. It actually creates a feel and a, a changing feel for us over the course of the film. You introduce somebody like Charlie, played uh, frighteningly and fascinatingly by John Goodman, who is is such a great character, and he's so fun to watch. And the interesting transformation he has, and just well, just the nature of his character, everything about his character, and 
how it almost is like he is a part of this hotel. And, you know, he says something at some point about how, you know, he's home or whatever. And it makes it sound like this hell that he's, you know, comes from as this crazy serial killer is, I mean, it really is an extension of him or it's an extension of, you know, if we're, if it's all in Barton's head, it's an extension of, what his interpretation of the common man is or something. And it, it, that's why I don't think it's just, it's too on the nose for saying, yes, this hotel is a representation of hell because we don't really know what that means in the context of the film. You can look at it so many different ways. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, I'd go even further. I mean, I, I really, in that context, okay, on the, on that plane, uh, as if we're saying that the Hotel Earl is hell, uh, then to me it is not an out-of-place uh, assertion to say that, uh, that Charlie is the devil in, in this hell. And, and he mm-hmm. takes a, a real sort of intimate kind of ownership of it at the end, um, which I, I love so much, but I, I, I want to save this point for, for a little bit later. Uh, at the end, as the as the hotel is sort of em, engulfed in flames, but not destroying itself, mm-hmm. uh, right there are no pieces kind of falling out. Everything's just on fire. Yeah. Uh, Charlie comes in, unlocks the door, and walks very calmly into his room, as if again he's home. He owns it. This is his. Yeah. This is his most comfortable, most his best space. Uh, and and Barton, and he even says so. Barton, you are a guest here. Right, and you come into this place and complain to me about the noise and say that I'm too loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, that ends up being a, a much more profound uh, kind of a sequence once you accept the fact that this is, it, whether or not it's in his head, this is Barton's hell. He has inhabited this place to go through a particularly difficult journey. Now, on the point of shoes, you know, I, the shoes and feet symbology, I think, is is fantastic in this connection. Um, that, uh, you know. Shoes are the symbol of sort of the journey, right? Mm-hmm. The, the symbol right. of the the precious journey and and uh, you know an arduous journey. Uh, and uh, Alia, uh, her name is gonna I'm gonna mess this up. Alia, Alia Whiteley uh, wrote on uh, Den of Geek uh, very recently in April of this year uh, a post on the symbolism of shoes, and she has this to say, which I thought was really interesting in the context. She was writing, in, you know, outside of the context of this particular film, but her post was specifically on the symbolism of shoes in movies. And, uh, you know, she writes, um, once you run out of shoes, uh, really the journey is over. And that's the sense that I get as Chet is walking down the hallway picking up shoes, you know, this, this sense of, of, you know, this, this is where the journey is, is ending for some of these people. Yeah. Uh, and to, Add to that, you know, we have to the religious mythology, and I know I'm totally rambling on this, but, you know, I told you, I'm excited about this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes to meet the uh, the producer at the pool. He goes to meet the studio chief at the pool to, to pitch, his, uh, pitch his film. He needs to hear the film. And, uh, uh, and the studio head gets down on his knees and picks up his feet and kisses his shoes. Mm-hmm. Right. And and to me, you get this sort of sense of honor thy creator. You know, I mean, that's is, you know, here we're 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 setting up this sense of, uh, you know, Barton as the creator of universes. Right. As yeah. the, you know, as the writer, kind of the powerful, um, 
and and that is to me the character he would take in his own head. And this is just a, a character that is struggling. And and a character that fascinatingly proclaims to be fascinated and want to speak for the common man and wants to tell the stories of the common man. But he writes this play in New York about his interpretation of the common man. Are the, is, it, is the audience full of common men? No, it's full of all of the hoity-toity rich people that, right. that go to these shows. So, so it's people who are looking at the common man through through this window. Like, none of them really know what the common man is. And then, he, when he gets to Hotel Earl, and he meets Charlie next door, John Goodman's character, who essentially is the representation of the common man, he, he goes on and on about, oh, gosh, what is that line that he says? Um, Charlie, who is the common man, says, oh, I could tell you some stories. And Barton says, sure you could, and yet many writers do everything in their power to insulate themselves from the common man, from where they live, from where they trade, from where, where they fight and love and converse. And so naturally their work suffers and regresses into empty formalism. And, it's, it, you know, and, and, it's, and well, I'm spouting off again, but to put it in your language, the theater becomes as phony as a $3 bill. And it's just so funny because Barton doesn't even realize that that's exactly what he's doing. He's he's insulating himself from this common man who's right here with him, who says, "I could tell you some stories." And Barton doesn't want to listen to the stories. Oh, it's it's absolutely brilliant. You're totally right, and I think John Goodman plays that so well in that sequence because he has this series of sort of like one after another of these half start double take moments where he's trying to start telling a story, but he just can't do it. Over to mm-hmm. Turo talking about the common man. It's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and to me, this, this is another sort of an epic test, right? It's that sort of Homeric, uh, you know, if we're looking at Totoro on his sort of Homeric journey of discovering uh, the heroes inside of himself, um, you know, this is, this is sort of the first opportunity to try and understand his relationship with the common man, which ultimately uh, culminates in uh, having to be slapped in the face with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in one case, literally, as he comes to... Uh, as uh, Charlie is right. slapping him in the face in the bathroom, but in the end of the film, and this is the point I was going to make earlier, because it, it, we we have this um, this final ultimate display of physical uh, dominance as Charlie uh, gets down on his knees in and and physically breaks the bars to free uh, Barton from, uh, you know, his handcuffs. At this Mm -hmm. point, he's handcuffed to the the bed. And we have both this sense of physical closeness that these two men have not had since the wrestling experience, right? Right. Uh, But we have it in such a way that demonstrates the power of Charlie in a way that, that Barton had not yet experienced. Uh, yes, they had the wrestling thing, but that was that was sort of a different context. And now we yeah. have this is look at what the common man is capable of, and you missed it the whole time, you idiot. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know the uh, the dance is another the the USO dance is another great example of him being right in between these and and these the surrounded these, by the, surrounded by these sailors about to ship off. Right. And speaking to them derogatorily, calling them, you know, this is my dance, sailor. You know, you kind of talking down to them, not realizing at all that this is the common man, that this is who he's trying to portray, and that he's so disconnected, he has no sense that these guys are about to go lay their lives on the line for him. Yeah. 
which, you know, speaks to a couple interesting points that, you know, he's Jewish and that's brought up time after time in this film. Not just him, but, you know, all the Jews, you know, they are always insulting each other. and just it, it, It's always They're pointed really out. They're really hard on each other. They're really they hard, are on, each really hard <laughs> on each other. And it's, it's right at, and, and we see it, I, I, I think that the date, is it, I can't remember, I don't think it's, um, it's, the, it's the slate on the wrestling picture, I believe, that has the date. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's December 7th, 1941, as I recall. At least that's what sticks in my mind. I know that date pops up somewhere in the film. And so this is clearly happening at a very critical time in World War II. And the fact that he is just so oblivious to that. As a Jewish person working in, in America, he just has no idea. And he's so disconnected. And you're right with these sailors. He just has, he's just so stuck in his own world and his own life that it's right. just, it's, it's almost, <laughs> you, you want to slap him. Oh, truly. Truly. Uh, so the, the uh, gosh, I feel like we could talk about this for days. The, the, the other point that I think is um, that, that I wanted to, to talk about with relationship to Charlie um, is this idea of the, the mystery box. Yes. What's your t- take on the mystery box? You know, that's a very interesting one because it's never revealed what's in this mystery box that Charlie gives uh, to Barton. But it's right after he, you know, this the muse, uh, uh, what's her name? I'm blanking on her name right now. Um, Judy Davis. She is uh, um, the secretary slash uh, lover slash wife, I think, of, of W.P. Mayhew, played by John Mahoney, who's um, uh, another writer not very happy with his place in the Hollywood system. And she ends up over at Barton's. She's kind of trying to help him out. They sleep with each other. He wakes up in the morning next to her dead and bloody. Charlie takes her out of the room and I think it's the next time we see Charlie, he gives him this box that's wrapped up in uh, the brown paper and all um, strung up and, and, and taped up and everything. And it's the perfect size for a head. Well, and this it, is right after the police, right? It, uh, they come clean or, or they come and tell Barton, you know, who this guy is. Yeah. And they show him they show him the newspaper because then also uh, Mayhew is also missing. Yes. Uh, with with his head missing, or he's not missing. His head is missing. His head is missing. <laughs> he's found with his head missing. So there's two possible heads that could be in this box, uh, if it's a head. I mean, my assumption has always been that it's it's a head, um, and I don't know if it's the head of his muse. But once he puts that box next to his typewriter, he starts flowing like the words start flowing from him, and he is finally able to write his script. He gets out of the writer's block that he's stuck in, and he can tell his story. Now, if that means that it's her head because she's his muse, maybe that's what it means. I don't know. It's it's pretty morbid way to look at it. I know there it, it feels so much like there are so many, uh, 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 so many ways to look at this. To me, uh, I, the uh, the connection between Charlie and his relationship with Barton at this point in the film is is fascinating. That Barton is he's becoming aware of who Charlie is or may be, and he's horrified by that fact. And yet, uh, Charlie, in this way, becomes his redeemer. 
right? A, a, again, he becomes, it's this motivation uh, that this, this potentially this head in a box on the desk is the motivation that Barton needs to get over his, his slump, that, yeah. that he is motivated in this sense by the grotesque. Uh, of of what is in that mystery box, and we never find out. But at the end, uh, as Goodman walks down the hall, he turns and he says, by the way, the box, uh, as he nods to his head, he puts his hand to his head and he says, it wasn't mine. Now, as he is, he, we read that as a kind of gentle salute, but that, that motion of tapping his head mm-hmm. is, is not lost on us at this point. And, uh, and, and you know, they want us to, to have this sort of grotesque relationship it feels to me but um it could be anything yeah and this from a man who is constantly talking about his head or keeping your head or losing your head or you know i know what it's like when things get clogged up at the head office yeah at the head office it's just like he he's bringing it up all the time and then yeah it just it it really ties in that this whole thing is this head and it's this something about your brain and it, it, interestingly the head and the heart came up quite a bit in Miller's Crossing and you know keeping your head and the hat and what the hat represented and he needed to kind of keep his head and all that and it's another interesting look at it here and the nature of keeping your head and this whole idea that Barton brings up and and then of course Charlie brings up again at the end the whole uh, you know the life of the or the what is it the life of the mind yeah, I'll show the, you. I'll show you the life I'll of the show mind. You the life of the mind. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the life of the mind versus you know I guess you could say in a in a way that's kind of what Barton represents and Charlie is more represents the life of the body or the working man or the common man, and that battle between the two, the mind and the body, and uh, I, I don't know. It's I, I I'm not really sure what else to say. It's just it's a fascinating balance between those two and the fact that Charlie is the one who has the you know puts this box in his in his hand that is his inspiration I think is a very interesting element of the film it it certainly is and I love that last line as he's as he's screaming down the hall you know and the flames come up behind Charlie and he's screaming you know look upon me mm-hmm. I'll show you the life of the mind look upon me uh, again, kind of hearkening to that religious language. Uh, but I think what it demonstrates and, and the final exchange between Charlie and Barton demonstrates is that, uh, in fact, uh, Charlie, of all, with all of his simplicity that we've, we've sort of seen, uh, is a source of, A, great power and great complexity. And that this ends up being the ultimate motivator for Barton to write essentially his cursed work, the best thing he's ever written that will never be used, uh, ends up being the the bittersweet kind of challenge at the end of the film. Yeah. I, I then, love that about this film. I and then it. interestingly, he, he doesn't take any ownership of it at the end, which I also think is interesting. It's like he's the writer, he's the one who has the life of the mind. At the end of the film when the woman on the beach asks him if what's in the box and is it his, he says, it's not mine. I don't know whose it is or whatever he says. And I don't know what's in it. It's like (laughs) now he's completely disconnected from it. I don't know. It is really fascinating. And one of those reasons why I found this film so much more interesting than I remembered it being. 
I, I'm so glad to hear that. That actually, that makes my night here. Uh, I, what is your, I, I love this sense of honesty in this film and it's, uh, you know, there's that, there's, there's a bit of a speech about honesty and what it would be like, uh, you know, this is the studio chief, uh, you know, talking about what it'd be like if, if he wasn't honest, you have to have honesty. Well, you know, I mean, sort of, I mean, not in this town with all the sharks swimming around, but you know, mostly you have to be honest. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you know, there's this, this, uh, I'm, I'm sensitive to, honesty and ethical monologues in Coen Brothers films now, I think. And from the character who at the beginning we think is being honest with Barton, right. saying, you know, it's it's about the writer. The writer is king. We, you know, we praise the writer. I only to see the, at the shoes of yeah, the writer. Exactly. Yeah. Only to have him totally turn his back on him at the end for for being honest and for telling an honest uh, an honest story as far as we know it is uh, burly man the script that he writes um, and and he is totally basically destroyed by the studio head at the end of the film saying you're gonna we're gonna keep you contracted to write with us and we're never going to do a thing with anything you write it's, it's like the the death of a writer being forced right. to write and not have anything put out there. We've talked about how Hollywood does that to yeah. people. I mean, it's not it's not far fetched, and it's there's this interesting look at at the honesty of of Barton's words versus the honesty of what people want. And in a way, it kind of goes back to Sullivan's travels and how that was a director who wanted to make a, a picture that meant something only to realize that what the pictures that meant something were were these kind of lower level crass films that just made people laugh because that's what the people really needed and you get this this character Barton who is disconnected from the common man and doesn't really know what the common man wants which is probably these these awful Wallace Beery wrestling pictures that they're right. making Right. And he writes something that is, quote unquote, you know, telling the truth and honest, but it's not something that people want. They want they want to forget it. They want these B pictures. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. OK. Uh, you know, the last note that I wrote down about the film before we start talking about the other stuff. Mm hmm. It's another it's another uh, I, I thought it was a really nice touch, likely not intended uh, but uh, a really nice touch to represent the disconnect of the common man, and it's at the end in the fight when Army and Navy get in a big fight in the uh, mm. in the USO dance. Mm -hmm. uh, everything kind of gets slow, but the music doesn't stop. It, it it is not affected. The band plays on, and to me, that just is yet another example of the disconnect of artists from the common man at the time. Right. I mean, there was this sense that in Barton's life, in that universe, uh, you know, that point just gets hammered home in every element. And that that sort of leads to this this other um, uh, point that I'm I am also excited to talk about, which was the use of sound in this film. Yeah, the sounds uh, were they it was so fascinating listening to this film and I kept. I mean, just every time another sound would come up, come up, this really blew me away what they were doing with the sound, whether it's the mosquito or any time his door opens into his his uh, hotel room, you get that whoosh sound of the air, mm -hmm. like he's in this compressed compartment or something like that. You know, the sewer and the drain and the neighbors, uh, well, you've got Charlie on one side, 
sobbing or whatever he's doing the one time and then you've got the the people having sex on the other side you've got the trumpet the 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 fire the ocean there's just the so mosquito. many yeah the mosquito humming the buzzing sound I, just everything uh is just overwhelming with these amazing sounds the waves crashing you know every creak every slap every i mean you hear you hear john goodman's jowls jiggle <laughs> like the sounds of saliva when when he discovers his muse in bed with him dead and he moves her just a little bit you hear the squeeze of the blood coming out from her uh, uh from under her on the mattress uh it is it, it's really uh such amazing attention to detail about the sound what do you think this what is your sense for um motivation and and what the the intensity of the small sounds represents in the film you know that's that's a good question i you know i i think on some level it represents you know it's one of the senses and it's a film about sensing things and you know these sensations for this guy who doesn't who's not connected to his senses and and he at a certain point, actually tries to block all of this out and and put himself in his own bubble, not just the the sounds because he puts these cotton balls in his ears so that he can focus on his on his writing and he doesn't want to hear the phone and everything else. But also, I mean, he's he's disconnected from his senses of. I'd like to think the smell of the bloody mattress laying in his in his room as the heat is is heating up. You've got the 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 tactile senses of the wallpaper oozing and the ear pus oozing out of John Goodman's ear. <sighs> just like, you know, the, the visual stuff of the fire and the water and just, there's, to me, it seems very sensual, um, not in, you know, not using it in any sort of a sexual way, but just sensual as in stimulation of the senses and a person who is focused on telling a true story to the point where he's actually disconnected from his senses and actually wants to cut them off. Yeah, I I think that's uh, that that's very much along the lines of my my sense of the sound is is um, uh, insofar as he is feeling everything else. I mean, there's this there's this uh, uh, an amazing sense of touch in this film, and and uh, that's a hard thing to do in in film. But because of that sensate approach, uh, when he stands up on the mattress and and pushes the the uh, wallpaper back up onto the wall and then turns around and looks at his fingers not only do you hear the squishing and slurping sound mm-hmm. of the glue you you're feeling it in his fingers and they they it, it is such a sort of a beautiful and disgusting kind of close up on his hands that we're we're sort of in his sense of touch and to me I think that that sound just magnifies all of the other sense experience, sensory experiences we're getting in this film yeah and I Film is a great medium to really play with the 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 auditory uh, world, and I think the way that they used the sounds to really amplify all of these external elements, essentially kind of coming at Barton and wanting putting him in a place where he wants to shield himself from it, I think was very effectively used. Yep, absolutely agree. Uh, here's an interesting thing. Uh, this is this film is I, I believe this one. Correct me on this. Is this is the first one that Roger Deakins took over as cinematographer, right? It is the first one that he took over because uh, Barry Sonnenfeld at this point was busy prepping his directorial debut, The Adams Family. 
in a, uh, I, I found a, a YouTube video, it's a 41-minute BBC YouTube video uh, that chronicles the, the Coens, but it was right around the time of, of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And, and uh, Deacons, who also did that film, um, is, is on screen, and he says, you know, this film is very different than Barton Fink. In Barton Fink, uh, it, it was amazing out of, you know, we shot for eight or nine weeks, and only nine to 12 shots total didn't make that film. Jeez. Uh, and, and his point here was that, you know, even in a film that is as sort of um, ideologically complex, uh, these guys are absolutely meticulous about what they bring to the table to shoot a film. Well, yeah, and and I had not I, I had not made that connection. I know you you've watched a lot of the more of the behind the scenes stuff than I have. This is all probably news to you or not news to you, but it was news to me just how uh, how intentional they are with the with just how they set up the film, start to finish before they even get to production. Uh, yeah, and, and I think this is uh, this is a movie that to me reads very much as uh, as uh, watches very much as testament to that. I mean, it is it it is uh, ideologically again meticulous. It's, you know, something that I think that they've, uh, I know the style is very different from Barry Sonnenfeld to Roger Deakins, and obviously the film kind of dictates that to a certain extent, but I think in both cases you do see that, uh, that preparation and the detail and, and kind of the planning that they go through, because everything feels so intentional in their films, and it all just really feels like it needs to be there, and... Uh, everything um, just comes across the right way, I think. I mean, I think it all feels spot-on planned. Yeah, yeah. Me too. It is, it is beautiful and, uh, and elegant and not... Uh, not I, I, maybe this comes at a cost, but at least in this film, there's, there is... Uh, it doesn't feel spontaneous. Well, I think the thing is, you know, when you're making a film, I mean, these are these are writer, director, producers. They they are essentially the decision makers of everything about the story that's happening in their film. They they've written it, they've gotten the money together, and they're going to tell the story, and and they're going to direct it, and they're going to make it the way that they want to make it. They should be responsible for all of that. Now, that's not to say that they're not going to let the actors bring something to the table and do some improvisational stuff to kind of find the character or to to do something that that they think might help help the part. That's not to say they're not going to let the the sound designer or the, the the director of photography or the costume designer or any of these people throw in their two cents. So that's the nature of the film business is is bringing all of those elements together and finding the right way to uh, to to get the message across that the directors are trying to get across. Now, like David Fincher said when we were talking about David Fincher way back, you know, the great thing about having directorial uh, or final cut, it's it's not about, you know, being this dictator and saying, well, this is the way I want it to be and that's what I want. It's It's being able to have educated conversations with people and being smart about thinking about what are you trying to get to in this story here, but being the person who is the one who gets to end that conversation. And I think that really fits for me, uh, just from what I can tell, the Coen brothers are actually really um, 
I guess you could say just mysterious. They they don't give you a lot of information actually on on any of their discs. There there's little on them. I mean, there's some some behind the scenes stuff, but there's they don't do commentaries uh, except for spoof commentaries as right, we've discussed right. before. They're very uh, mysterious, and so a lot of it is just interpretation. But that's my sense of them is they really are the type of filmmakers who have a vision. They very much know exactly what they want to do. They're going to welcome whatever creative input they get from people, but they are the ones who say, let's do it this way. I, I, I've, I think as a result, I've enjoyed uh, digging into some of these, uh, you know, these behind the scenes and these films available on YouTube, the, um, the profiles that, as you say, are, they're really brief uh, in, in what you actually see from, uh, from uh, the brothers themselves, but you get a lot of people talking about them. Uh, with some authority, and it's been it's been fun to uh, through this process to watch some of that. There are some also some there, there's a really interesting uh, uh, conversation with a uh, film class. It's an hour long about how to start a film, hmm. and the whole thing is all about you know how do you build your credits, how do you build your title sequence, how do you build your whoosh, uh, and uh, uh, it's a it's a fascinating watch. I, I looked at it now I now I've lost it. I'll have to dig up that uh, that link and post it in the show notes. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, uh, let's see, Carter Burwell on music. Yeah, I, I think, of, again, he effectively creates a great score. He's not pulling anything like the you know the last film that he really kind of pulled from kind of Oh, Danny Boy and mm-hmm. the whole Irish music sound. Raising Arizona, he definitely was pulling from some, some old-timey tracks. This is really, I think, much more of an original score, kind of like Blood Simple was, not pulling from anything in particular. He could have easily pulled from like 40s tunes and stuff like that, but it feels very much just his music. It's a very effective score for the film, and uh, it's I, I yeah I think it's solid. It interacts. Uh, it's one of these. Uh, there there are a number of moments, for example, that that interact sort of playfully with the uh, with the the overall sound of the film. You know, right after. Uh, Barton is uh, discovers his muse dead in the bed. Uh, you know he sits down to to write, and he utters these sort of the series of squeaks mm-hmm. uh, that are off tempo. And there's this wonderful sense of of the the strings coming in in between his squeaks that that <laughs> kind of makes that sense of mourning that he's feeling that panic stricken sense of loss uh, <laughs> so much more palpable. I think it's a, there are, there are a number of those little gimmicks in the film that I think really stand out. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, we should say, just jumping backward a little bit, but Alan Byer is the one who did the, he's the production sound mixer on the film. And uh, Credit uh, where wor- credit is due. That's right. He's done quite a bit of work with the Coen brothers, uh, starting with, looks like, Raising Arizona, um, off and on, up through the Big Lebowski. It doesn't look like he's worked with them since that, but he certainly is a busy man otherwise, working on many, many things. What else is on your list here? Uh, you know, I actually think uh, we hit it. You know, a couple last little things that I think are interesting is, uh, one, according to the Coen brothers, that final scene where we're looking at the image of the woman, it's almost like he's finally really lost in his own mind or something, whatever's going on there. But we're seeing the woman sitting on the beach looking ex- ex- identical to the the that cheap painting that he had on the wall of his hotel room, mm-hmm. and we see that um, 
as as the last shot of the film, we see her sitting there. Everything looks exactly the same. And then a pelican comes out of nowhere <laughs> and dives into the ocean, like right in the back. And then they cut. And according to the Coen brothers, that pelican w- just came out of the blue. It was completely not planned. It was just one of those weird, happy accidents. And uh, it's just like the strangest thing that happens. But I love that it does. And I love that that's the shot they used because... There's something off about that that throws, I don't know, it throws something in. And in a weird way, it kind of ties in back to the beginning of the film where you have the first shot of this film after the credits and the wallpaper is a weight descending from the sky, essentially. And we follow this weight as it comes down in the back of the stage of the show that he's doing. And it's it mirrors that and and here we see now this this wall portrait that's come to life of this muse or whoever it is and we see this pelican it's like this giant weight coming down again it's a strange mirror and it's amazing that that ended up happening i i also love it that the stage hand in the beginning comes out and and his part is to yell <laughs> fresh fish fresh and as we all know pelicans eat fish that's uh, and there's a, okay. That may be a stretch, but I will tell you that I totally agree with you. And I had I not known that it was uh, an accidental um, uh, find, uh, I would have thought that the intention ends up being, uh, you know, twofold. First of all, so that uh, it, it is, it gives you a sense that this is real. Yeah. Right? That this is not something that's in that's just in Barton's head. That there's a sense that if it were if it were really I- idyllic, if he were really finding that special kind of place of peace uh, in his head after this ordeal, then that that scene would mimic the f- the the painting perfectly. Yeah. But it doesn't. It breaks that sort of that, that imaginary wall between you know what is him and what is uh, what is he's experiencing in his head right. and what he's experiencing. Uh, you know, I I have to add this this quote that is you know it's under it's on Wikipedia of of the Coens. Um, this is Ethan Cohen, and and to me this is sort of a way to to conceptualize at least what their intention was uh, for this reality versus headscape. Uh, Ethan says, uh, it is correct to say that we wanted the spectator to share in the interior life of Barton Fink, as well as his point of view, but there is no need to go too far. For example, it would have been incongruous for Barton Fink to wake up at the end of the film and for us to suggest thereby that he actually inhabited a greater a reality greater than what is depicted in the film. In any case, it is always artificial to talk about reality in regard to a fictional character, unless you're talking about Inception. <laughs> uh but you know to me that 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 sort of wraps it up that that um in in a, in a nice little little package had they gone for the the more obvious dreamscape uh i i we probably we likely would not have been talking about the film in this yeah. <laughs> it would not be as interesting no absolutely not absolutely not yeah yep. all right very interesting. Very uh, interesting. How did uh, let's talk about the numbers do you have numbers on uh, yeah i do have numbers on this one it um it didn't do that well. <laughs> this film uh, was uh, it was made in 1991. It was uh, it played at well, we, uh, it played at Con. It won the Palm Door. It won best uh, was a best directors and best actor John Turturro, and uh, which is actually the first time that it ever happened at Con. Normally, they really try to 
you know, space things out. Or I guess historically, it's always been they spread out their awards a little bit. They don't focus on one film so much. But because of that trifecta that this film won, they actually established a rule that no film could get more than two awards now. So some strange little rule wow. over at Cannes, yeah. But it, it opened at Cannes and then, or premiered at Cannes, and then it opened in uh, August 91. And uh, they made this for about $9 million, and it only ended up grossing, let me see if I can find it, uh, about $6 million, just over $6 million. Um, so it didn't make its money back. And for a, a film that was 116 minutes long, adjusted, it lost about $41,464.16 per finished minute. Oh, that would be sad. Yeah, yeah it's, in our, sad. it's in our list of losers. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, remember, these numbers really boil down to their initial theatrical run. It doesn't take into account any money that it, made, it may have made since then on, on DVD, on video, on Laserdisc, on, on you know, theatrical re-releases, anything like that. I mean, I can't imagine this film has yet to make its money back. <laughs> but, but some of the losers on our list, I think, that we've talked about have. Yeah. There's a, uh, uh, there's a, a uh, on the MTV Movies blog, did you, did you catch this, this the potential sequel? Uh, I didn't catch it there. I think I read about it somewhere else. I think Wikipedia mentioned something. They are talking about a, a sequel that would take place in the 60s uh, that is called Old Fink. Uh, <laughs> Ethan says, we did talk to John Turturro about during this. We want John to be old enough to do it. The brothers have even at least a baseline idea of how, how they would form the story. It's another 1967 movie, Joel said, in reference to A Serious Man, which was set during that turbulent period. It's a summer of love, and Fink is teaching at Berkeley. Berkeley. He's ratted on a lot of his friends to the House on American Activities Committee. <laughs> he's got George Kaufman hair, but he's going gray. He wears a medallion, Ethan said. Nice. We told Totoro that this is one sequel we'd actually like to make, but not until he's actually old enough to play the part. Joel explained, how old is old enough, you may ask? He's getting there, Ethan said. So, <laughs> uh, This, to me, reads very much as one of their uh, fantastic, um, uh, you know, uh, director's commentaries. <laughs> yeah, having having fun with the audience, I think, yeah. is what I'm I... I'm not, what I I'm not holding my breath on this one, yeah. but I, I love I, the concept. And I love the idea that, that they would plant Barton as a rat to the House on American <laughs> Activities Committee. I think that's really very funny. It is. Speaking of somebody not in touch with the common man. <laughs> Shall we uh, rank this thing? Yeah, let's. Where can they find us? Oh, I do that. <laughs> uh, you. you can find us at uh, flickchart.com uh, slash the next reel. And uh, that is where you will find uh, our ranked list of all the films that we've done uh on this show it's oh, oh, 110 this will be 106 huh i think yep. we're behind some then right no or i think we're missing some no we're not how is that possible because we've done 13 uh film boards and we've done this is 97 there were a few overlaps ah curses overlaps <laughs> Okay, fine. Uh, so you can find us there. You can also find us at letterboxd.com uh, slash the next reel, and you can find us there for our, uh, you know, we got movies there too. So if you're a letterbox user, go over there and you'll find our lists 
uh, you'll find our uh, that's what they do star rankings over there. So we got to do that too, right? Yeah, we do yeah, that, and then you can find all of our our posts from you know each film and everything over there yep. too. So yeah. Letterboxd fan, that's where you go. But you should really head over to iTunes first and foremost and subscribe to the show there because that's that's where you ensure that you never miss a single episode. So right. All right, you ready? I'm ready, Andrew. Barton Fink or Moon? Barton Fink. Yeah, I will go with Barton Fink on this one. Barton Fink or The Night of the Hunter? I am going to have to go with The Night of the Hunter on this one. Really? Yeah. All right. All right, Night of the Hunter. All right. Barton Fink or Up in the Air? Up in the Air. Absolutely. Barton Fink or Sunshine? Interesting. Interesting. Mm, I do love Sunshine a lot. Uh, yeah, but uh, you know, I think about the the just in terms of the symbolic substance. What I the the joy I get out of looking at the layers that go on in Barton Fink, there just isn't that sort of substance in Sunshine. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an attempt at, at you know, there's a message that that uh, Boyle's trying to get across in Sunshine. It's not quite cohesive. I think he, he flumbers flumbers. He, he may flumber. <laughs> I hope he doesn't flollop. Or a fliggers, yeah, <laughs> whatever he does. <laughs> Flounder, how about that? <laughs> I just like to make words up sometimes. Nice. Uh, yes, so I'm going with Barton. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, interesting. Barton Fink or Adaptation? The screenwriter is, versus the screenwriter. I, I'm going to go with, with Barton here just because genu- generally I am uh, more personally attracted to the relationship of Charlie and and. Uh, and Barton uh, in this film, but uh, I I find them both rewarding on the same level. I I feel like I would go with adaptation. The Nicolas Cage versus Nicolas Cage I think is fantastic. Chris Cooper is so great in adaptation. Oh yeah, he's, he's such an amazing character. And Meryl Streep, I, you know, adaptation I think is is I don't know. I just I I think that. We didn't talk like like this about adaptation. I mean, I know you're right. The performances are great, but you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like I enjoy adaptation a lot more, though. Like, adaptation is a film I could so much more easily just watch and just thoroughly enjoy. It is. But, it is certainly more approachable. Yeah. Barton Fink is a film that I won't put on that often. I think I will enjoy watching it when i do put it on okay all right i'll give you i'll give you this and i look forward to what you're going to give up next that's right that's right barton fink or the descent (laughs) (laughs) oh nuts (laughs) the descent right yeah it's going to be the descent it is going to be the descent on this one oh don't make me give this up Burn Finger Field of Dreams? Oh. Oh, please. It has to be Field of Dreams. You didn't even need to read that out loud. Did you see that uh, that ridiculous thing that Sarmento did to me on Facebook? I, I didn't. No, I totally missed that. I'm going to have to post that. Uh. Yeah, it's ridiculous and it's uh, that's this is for that, Steve. Andy, you owe me, man. Oh, you. Totally Barton. Thanks, Steve. All right, 45. <laughs> Field of Dreams is 46. 
should be 45. <laughs> you're, you're, you're damned lucky it's, it's uh, even over 50. Oh, man. Uh, 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 no, that's just me being belligerent. But you are. I do think that this, that was the right call. I think you, you, just, you, you earned that one. Thank you. No, I feel like I sold out. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I sold out to the common man. To the common man. <laughs> oh, man. A union <sighs> boss is coming to your house tonight, I heard. So. <laughs> um, hey, this was, uh, this was a treat. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad I watched it again because it's a, it's a film that deserves to be revisited. I am super glad to hear you say that. I feel, I call that, I'm, I'm actually going to put a notch on my desk here. <laughs> the, the times I get Andy to soften his uh, view on a film. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, where do we go from here, my friend? Well, we're going to be uh, continuing our series, More Cohen Fun, and we're, or I shouldn't say fun, More Cohen Drama, because we're <laughs> focusing on the drama. We're going to be uh, going all the way up to visit the town of Fargo. Fargo. That's next, huh? Mm-hmm. I look forward to that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. We saw this together when it came out. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Oh, boy, those were the days. Good night, Andy. Night. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.